wonder what that first birth was like after Pharaoh made his decree. When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. Did everyone just hold their breath in the room waiting to see what the baby would be? Did Pua know going in that if it was a boy, she was going to let him live? Who else did Shipra talk with about her defiant decision to disobey? Were there other midwives in on this? Their vocation was to bring life into this world, and the king was telling them to do the opposite. I wonder, too, what they must have felt like when they were standing in front of Pharaoh. Would playing into his fears and the stereotypes about the Hebrews and their breeding habits, was it going to work? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to be born. Well, thank God their plan did work. Thanks to Shipra and Pua's defiance and their faithfulness, Moses is born. And not just him, but presumably many other Hebrew boys, some of whom would grow into men and would cross the Red Sea and go into the wilderness with their families. Eventually, their descendants would reach the promised land. What we get to hear this morning is part of the opening of the book of Exodus. And it is setting the stage for the rise of one of the most important figures in all of scripture, Moses. And unlike a lot of stories in the Bible, there are women everywhere. There's Shipra and Pua, of course, but there's also Moses' mother and his sister. There's Pharaoh's daughter and her attendants, who we presume to be female, walking along the River Nile. And each one of them takes a risk. Moses' mother hides her baby as long as she can. And then she crafts this mini ark for him out of papyrus. She waterproofs it, and then it sets sail into the unknown. And she clings to hope that her timing is right, and maybe he will get a chance to live. And the baby's sister, whose name we don't learn, but we believe to be Miriam, watches from a distance. But she does more than that. She sees where he lands, and then cleverly volunteers to find a Hebrew woman who can nurse the baby. And of course, she has the perfect person in mind. So mother and child will have a little bit more time together. And then what about Pharaoh's daughter and her attendants? They're taking a risk picking up this baby, and when they realize it's a Hebrew child, of continuing to care for it. And it says she takes him in as her own son once he had grown. There was something at work in the lives of these women. And some of them knew it was God and named it as God. And some were probably just trying to do the right thing. But they all become midwives to God's promise. They become midwives to this promise of liberation, of faithfulness, and of relationship. One of the most striking questions that I've heard raised about this passage is how could that new king not know Joseph? 
Remember and go back to the opening line of the text today. It says, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The king doesn't know his history. He doesn't remember that the ancestor of the Israelites, these people that he despises and is trying to break and really destroy through any means necessary, it's their ancestor, Joseph, that helped the, the Egyptians survive a terrible famine. I think it's a stark reminder for us, too, that the stories that we tell, the ones that we forget or suppress or try to ignore, they matter because it shapes who we think we are. Identity is this theme that I think connects the Exodus story and our gospel for today. The new king did not know Joseph. Moses is going to grow up and have to navigate his identity as both a Hebrew and an Egyptian. And we'll see him grow into his identity as this great prophet and this kind of unexpected leader of the Israelites. And then there's that arresting question in today's gospel. But who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, Simon Peter says. You're the one we've waited for. You're the savior. You are the son of the living God. Peter's not just answering this question of identity. It's also a question of allegiance. And where this conversation with Jesus and his disciples is taking place, it makes a difference. It's happening in Caesarea Philippi. And in that place, there is this cave and this spring that has long served as a sanctuary for the Greek god Pan. And then just a couple of decades before Jesus was born, Herod the Great builds this temple near the spring to honor Caesar Augustus. And as the first emperor of the Roman Empire, he had added the very bold phrase, Divi Filius, son of the divine. The emperor adds son of the divine into his title. So how much more then does Peter's declaration that Jesus is the son of the living God resound? By the time Jesus and his disciples arrive there, the city is this administrative hub of government. So statues and signs of polytheism and empire all around them as they're having this conversation. Who are you going to put your trust in? Who do you say that I am? In this city, we have our own temples of devotion to empire. We have statues of plenty. And who do we say Jesus is? Last week, Rob preached reminding us that churches are these learning labs where we get to learn how to love. Places where we not only learn about Jesus' way of love, but we try it out ourselves and we learn to walk in it. As Christians, we try our best to put our trust in God, believing that not only did God work through people like Shipra and Pua, but God actually came to live among us. That is a profound belief that God came to live among us, not just to tell us how to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God, but to show us by walking with us. At the end of the gospel, though, Jesus gives that curious warning not to tell anybody that he's the Messiah. 
Maybe it's because his plans to reveal that identity on a broader scale, they're still developing. Maybe it's because that claim is too offensive to imperial and religious leaders at that time. We'll certainly see that reality play out later in the Gospels. And maybe it's because the kind of Messiah that Jesus is, it's not who Peter is expecting. It's going to take him and the other disciples and us time to understand what it means that he is the Messiah. He's not arriving with this angelic army to conquer. He's on foot with a pretty motley crew of ordinary people. And you and I are invited to join that crew, that community. In this city, I think it seems like what you do and who you know are some of the most important things. And in the world as it is currently, those parts of our lives, they do help and they do matter. But they are definitely not the end all be all. There is an invitation here to remember who made us and who it is that calls us by name. And more than that, there's an invitation to add a perhaps unlikely skill set to your resume. And that's to be a midwife. To be a midwife like Shipra and Pua, like Miriam and Pharaoh's daughter and Peter, who are bringing God's promises of liberation and relationship and faithfulness further into this world. So what does that look like? Well, it means we come together to remember these stories in community so that we don't forget where we come from and who came before us and the one that we're trying to follow. We're called to help one another, to prepare for those moments when we are gonna have to make decisions that impact the lives of others. And in those moments to be brave enough and courageous enough to not only think of ourselves and our family. We are called to see and proclaim that the son of the living God is still in our midst, wanting us not only to know him, but to follow him. Amen.